Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. My guest today is Dr. Bronwyn McInnes. We'll be chatting about COVID-19 evolution, transmission, and diagnostics. We'll be tackling some of these media stories around strains and the differences between them. We'll talk about diagnostic capacity, what we have and what we need to get things under control. Dr. McInnes has had a multi-decade career in the field of genomic epidemiology, which means using DNA and RNA to track how viruses and other pathogens spread and change throughout an outbreak. In the past, she's worked on Zika virus, Ebola virus, and malaria. She's also done a lot of work on bringing diagnostic and genomic testing capacities to low-resource parts of the globe. Dr. McInnes is an Associate Director of Malaria and Viral Genomics at the Broad Institute, a partnership between MIT and Harvard University. She's a visiting scientist as well at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. McInnes did her PhD at the University of Alberta. She did her postdoctoral studies at Stanford University, and that's where uh, I'm really glad I bumped into her. She and I have been fast friends for the last 15 years, and uh, even to the point where she's the inspiration for one of my daughter's names. So it's a real pleasure, both professionally and personally, to speak with Dr. McGinnis today. I'm so thrilled that she was able to carve out some time because she is really, truly in the trenches with COVID-19 research. Dr. Bronwyn McInnes, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Uh, I know your plate is extremely full, so this time is really appreciated. We have a lot I want to cover in roughly 30 minutes, so let's just dive right in. Um, I guess the big three areas we'll talk about will be um, strains and sort of evolution of the virus, uh, second one being you know, viral uh, transmission and sort of dynamics, <laughs> and the last one will be diagnostics. So. Uh, we'll just we'll just jump in with the okay. strains and the evolution part of it because that's one I think is getting a lot of a lot of media and there's a lot of sort of yeah. confusion and misinformation out there. So the like, the big question I want you to answer is, you know, is what what's actually happening in terms of how mm-hmm. the virus has changed since um, it yeah. entered humans. So I'll just start by saying that I work um, primarily at the Broad Institute, um, which is a, 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 a research institute um, that has a long history of doing genetic research um, in Boston. It's associated with MIT and Harvard. Um, and we there at the Broad Institute, as well as uh, centers really around the world, have been using um, sequencing technology to understand uh, the genetic code of the uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and using that information to to really understand what this little beast looks like at the most fundamental level. And from the very beginning uh, of COVID-19, as early as I think the first week of January, when, when uh, the alarm was really sounded about something interesting and, and potentially dangerous happening in Wuhan, one of the very first things um, that scientists did was isolate the virus and, and sequence its genetic code. And it was on that basis that, in fact, we identified um, that, that, the, that the microbe, the pathogen that was causing this strange illness was, in fact, a, a coronavirus. Um, it's something that we as scientists are familiar with, but we had never seen this particular coronavirus before. 
Um, and so after a bit more analysis, um, it emerged that it was a, a new member of the, um, of the SARS uh, coronavirus family, um, similar to uh, the virus that caused the uh, SARS COVID outbreak, you know, a decade more than um, geez, uh, quite a while ago now, but <laughs> that we've seen before in Canada and around the world. Um, but this was a kind of a new, a new cousin of, of that virus um, and one that we had never characterized before. So everything that we know about it, we've really learned in just, I mean, it's remarkable COVID time. It feels like much longer, but it's really only been a few months. And so we're just really starting to understand what we're dealing with here, really in all aspects. Um, yeah, and so um, so with with the, using genetic sequencing first to identify the virus, um, we continue to sequence um, virus samples that are collected from infected patients, typically. Um, we call those isolates because they're isolated from infected skin. Um, and by sequencing, looking at the genetic code of those viruses, we can track whether the virus is changing or mutating as it moves from person to person and country to country over time and around the world. And so my work and the work of many others uh, is to, to collect that information in real time and to analyze what is changing in the virus and what that means, if anything, and then also to use the information to, um, to understand how it's spreading. So then I guess I would say, mm-hmm. you know, you see, I've heard people talking about there's X number of strains now. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's some articles about these. These are the eight strains circulating yeah. around the globe. And then now there's 42 strains. And, you know, so <laughs> right. I guess, um, how uh, would you answer that question of, you know, how many strains are the, there the and how different question, are they? Yeah. And the question about mutations, mm-hmm. mutations in a virus and what do they mean? So. I'll start with the simple answer to the number of strains question. The the answer is that that in fact, there's only one SARS-CoV-2 strain. Um, There are many reports um, that I think are just misguided um, and potentially preliminary at this point, but uh, uh, as we know right now that are are, are just wrong, um, that there are multiple strains circulating. There's only one strain. There are indeed mutations that are emerging in the virus's genome um, and that are, are being spread naturally. And that's a very normal thing. And mutations aren't inherently bad at all. They just happen um, as a natural process of um, as the virus replicates and makes copies of itself. There are little errors that get introduced into the genetic code. And by and large, um, those have no consequence um, on the kind of the biology and the um, you know, the important features of the virus in terms of how it infects and causes diseases in humans. So how it transmits, how it causes, uh, how it causes illness. Um, it, they're really kind of silent, benign changes in the sequence. Um, and so there are many of those, um, but none of them have um, emerged as a mutation that actually changes the biological the kind of functional um, a functional property of the virus. And that is really, I think, the definition of a new strain. When when a mutation that emerges and that becomes, um, you know, to some degree entrenched in, in the population actually changes something functional about maybe um, the way that the virus transmits or how it enters, um, you know, to infect cells um, or other other features of the, the virus. Uh, the biology of the virus. 
So for there, there aren't any of those. Um, so what, what, what would you call those, those different versions? Um, actually, that's a good question. And I, I hesitate a little bit because even I think in the, in the viral genomics, viral um, kind of evolutionary uh, biology community, there's, we use these words loosely and sometimes we may um, be contributing to the pro- problem of, of mm-hmm. misunderstanding here because sometimes the word strain slips out in a kind of more conventional colloquial way rather than in mm-hmm. a biological definition. But I think you could, would call those um, different lineages. So uh, if you know you could see that particular viruses with certain genetic features that don't change the function, but just kind of give um, a set of viruses its its fingerprint, its genetic mm-hmm. fingerprint, you can identify those as lineages. You could just call them isolates. They're just mm-hmm. it, individual isolates, I think, with unique genetic signatures. Um, yeah, so so I think isolates, sometimes we call them clades in a similar way when there's kind of a group of a, a kind of group of viruses with a common genetic ancestry that where you can mm. can see that certain certain mutations have been propagated through a certain population of the viruses we would mm. refer to that as a clade mm. um, but again it's not a strain and it's not it's not the mutations aren't causing um, you know a more dangerous form of the virus or a kind of franken Franken COVID, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, mutation that that is uh, something we need to be really worried about at this time. They're just so, natural signatures. Yeah. So, what sorts of analyses do you do um, on these different versions to 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 get at that question of the functional relevance? Functional. Yeah. So, actually, I think there's a really um, a popular example of one of these mutations where. The scientific community and certainly the the um, the media have picked up on and are really looking closely at a particular mutation um, in the in uh, the what is known as the spike protein um, of the virus. It's one of the the pieces of the virus that kind of stick off the surface um, and that are exposed to to the environment. Um, and it's actually a, a really important target because it's in the region where we would be um, focusing on making a vaccine. So people are really curious to see if this mutation does confer any kind of uh, functional change to the virus. Um, and you may have seen the the way this is referred to is that it's a D614G mutation. And that means that uh, an amino acid at the 614th position of the amino acid chain that makes up the the virus has been mutated to um, from a D, one type of amino acid, to a G, another type. Um, and the D was the original version that emerged in Wuhan um, and mostly circulated around Asia. Um, and the G is called the derived or kind of the new version. Um, and it mostly moved uh, westward from, from Asia through, um, through Europe and into mm-hmm. kind of the East Coast of North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some, uh, I would say, um, you know, anecdotal evidence that that this um, mutation, the the G version, um, confers increased transmissibility mm-hmm. of the virus. But that's really based on uh, on kind of observational data. There's no 
um, there's no kind of hard science that uh, that that sh that shows that it, it's just a good hypothesis at this time. And the way that we first of all, the, getting at that is actually pretty tricky because it's hard to do experiments on on SARS-CoV-2 um, either in the real world because um, there aren't many human volunteers <laughs> who want to get <laughs> infected with different versions to see um, whether in fact it, uh, the virus transmits or causes diseases more easily. And it's also really hard to do this work in the lab because this is a this is a very infectious and 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 deadly virus. As we know, mm -hmm. the experiments on the virus itself need to be done with full um, PPE and high containment, very specialized facilities. And so it's really it's really actually quite tricky to uh, manipulate it in the lab and ask these kinds of questions in a more controlled environment. Mm -hmm. But the way you would get at it is, is both by doing population kind of human level population studies and lab based um, kind of more mechanistic studies um, mm -hmm. in human populations you would look at um, places where there's a mix of both the the D and the G um, form of SARS-CoV-2 naturally circulating mm -hmm. um, and there are in many cases many regions of the world have predominantly one or the other but some have a mix and then given that you have, you know, in the same, say within the same country, um, a mix of both types of virus, you could see if there's differences in the population in terms of um, how the, the virus seems to be transmitting or how it's causing disease, say disease severity, is, is it increasing hospitalizations? Is it increasing, increasing death or other uh, severe complications? Mm -hmm. And then in the lab, um, we look at ways of looking at how well it infects cells or what kind of damage it does to cells, you know, in a, in a Petri dish, basically that kind of idea and seeing if in a molecular um, experimental way, you could see evidence that, that the virus with this um, derived version and this kind of newer version of SARS-CoV-2 actually increases Mm -hmm. transmission or, or or some kind of pathology in a in an experimental sense then you'd again want to go back and look at that in human populations to see if it if it if it's true there too so mm -hmm. those are I'd say the two ways you would get at that problem but at this point it, it's still very much a hypothesis and the, there's really no substantial evidence that it will be a new strain so is that really the only one of all the different variants out there that even has a possibility of having a functional difference and the rest you rule out based on computational or other reasons to think it's probably completely, you know, yeah. meaningless? Yeah, uh, um, it's the one, certainly the one that we're, you know, the the research community and the medical community is, is watching the most closely. Um, there, you know, there are studies to look at whether other mutations um, correlate or associate mm -hmm. with um, different um, observations in patients. Do we see mutations that that are uh, correlated with higher disease severity, or you know, more se more severe disease, or mm -hmm. with particular um, types of disease? So some people have more cardiac involvement some people have you know more severe lung mm -hmm. involvement um mm -hmm. uh and and or, or just more severe you know uh you know death as an outcome um but i'm just trying to think if there's any other ones that are are, are really kind of 
um, strong candidates. I don't, yeah. I don't think so at this I mean, point. So yeah. So the reason I was asking that question is, um, because I think maybe you, you didn't t- touch on the mm. way that we can easily rule out, rule out a lot of changes because they don't even change anything, any proteins or that's right. know, this. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. There, there are many, there are many, um, genetic changes that don't actually change anything in the way the, the virus, um, kind of assembles itself. They're, they're silent mutations. And so uh, we know that those ones aren't going to have an effect. We'd mm-hmm. be focusing on the ones that potentially could. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. the, the upshot, you know, the take-home message really is that um, mutations are normal. In many cases, they're even a helpful thing because they help us to, um, to track the virus, which is a different, a different kind mm-hmm. of application of, 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 of uh, the genetic code. Mm-hmm. Um, the, another use of it, but um, and so far, there's only one strain, and there's no uh, there's no no real evidence for uh, a new SARS-CoV-2 strain that is more transmissible or more uh, pathogenic. So, what have we mm-hmm. learned from all this change tracking about sort of the rate of change? And, and can you help put some context about comparing this virus to others? Ooh, yeah. So um, the rate of change. Would you consider it to be um, a rapidly evolving virus or an average right, sort of? I see. Yeah. No, I would say on, on the spectrum, it's probably a, a more slowly evolving virus. But um, in terms of the num- how long it takes for kind of a new mutation to emerge mm-hmm. as it passes from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, but because there's so much of that passing from person to person, um, there is actually a lot of genetic diversity that's out there in the in the virus, but um, it actually accumulates like in terms of the rate more slowly within mm-hmm. the genomes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, within the virus. Yeah, because there's, yeah. I guess people are always trying to tie this to vaccines and does this mean we're never going to be able to have yeah. you know, a universal vaccine that we have right. to have a that's different a vaccine for question. each one and yeah. all of that. I would say too soon to know, but mm-hmm. compared to, for example, the, the seasonal flu, um, where we do know that, you know, we're, we haven't yet achieved a, a universal vaccine and we need, do need to create a new one each year based on um, trying to anticipate, you know, uh, what flavor of the flu mm-hmm. is going to uh, going to spread each each flu season. Um, SARS-CoV-2 does, does change more slowly. And so there's some optimism that a universal vaccine is is uh, is is possible, but there are many other factors um, that make uh, creating a vaccine challenging. Um, and uh, and it's it's nice to to know that you know we don't have to uh, struggle as much with the rate of the mutation rate of this virus, but uh, there are many other challenges. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. let's move on to talking about. Um, transmission dynamics, I guess. So you've been involved yeah. in a lot of work on seeing how this virus is spreading and using the fingerprint to do that. So can you just mm-hmm. tell tell sort of um, a little bit about how what's, what's being done and then what we've learned? Right. Sure. Yeah. So this is, um, as I was mentioning, another another use of studying the genetic code of, of of SARS-CoV-2 or of, of any um, other bugs that cause disease um, is that these mutations that happen mostly naturally um, give us 
a, a fingerprint of, of, the, of the virus or the viral kind of populations that are spreading through particular communities. And it allows us to track, um, to track kind of, it's kind of like understanding the enemy at its most fundamental um, level, the genetic code that makes it up. It's like having its, uh, its secret um, war plans in a way uh, that help you to, to know kind of where it's come from and, and gives you some indication of where the at-risk places might be that it could be going um, and how it's, how it's seeding infections in, in different communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we and, and many others around the world um, are actively collecting um, samples, uh, usually discarded when someone um, has a diagnostic test done. Uh, we get a residual bit of, of the discarded diagnostic um, material, which contains the virus. Um, and we, we use that to sequence its genetic code from that sample. And then we take a little bit more information from, from the, from the, the person who, who the sample came from, maybe like where, where that was collected, what hospital or clinic uh, and some sense of, um, you know, what, what, what date that was, um, and sometimes some other characteristics of, of, uh, that might be relevant about the kind of demographics. And then we can use um, the, uh, the genetic information to understand um, where the virus, no, it's not really done at the personal level. We kind of look across people in groups at the population level um, to understand where the virus, say, in a particular community has come from. How was it introduced? Or how is it continuing to be introduced? So um, an example from that, so where I work is uh, based in the Boston area. Um, And so we have asked questions about how did SARS-CoV-2 arrive in Boston? And um, when, where, what, when it came, uh, what, what could we learn from that might influence how we might think about future control measures. For example, did most of it come from international travel or is most of it coming from New York City? Um, so at that level, just understanding the dynamics and, and the, the kind of migration routes of the virus. And then at, at a smaller scale, um, we and others are working with like local hospitals or local um, facilities that have higher risk of infections like nursing homes. A good example is just asking the question of whether there is transmission within those settings where the virus is spreading kind of within the walls of of the facility versus is it continually being brought in from the outside? Mm -hmm. And that might affect how you how you deal with the problem of 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 infections happening in your facility, because if there's there's spread that's seeded from within, you're thinking about how to decontaminate a wing or, you know, um, checking your ventilation. Whereas if it's coming in from people, with people who are coming in from the outside repeatedly, say, say staff or visitors, you're thinking about making sure that they're wearing masks or, or, or using hand washing and sanitation or, or, or restricting those uh, introductions. Mm-hmm. So it can help you to, to know where to direct your attention. Yeah. So is those are just anything, a couple of examples. Yeah. Is there anything that sticks out at all about this virus? Again, putting this one in context, or is it mm-hmm. is it a sort of 
plain vanilla virus or is there mm-hmm. anything sort of that's been surprising that people have found as they've followed these things mm. um or yeah what have been some of the interesting in terms um, observations? of the epidemiology yeah yeah oh there's all kinds that that you know mm-hmm. all kinds of things that are interesting about um about this one um, I think every every virus and every epidemic, or you know, in this case, pandemic, um, is its own, you know, uh, own special beast, and mm-hmm. uh, and and we're only beginning to understand this one. I think um, I think one of one of the, I mean, some of the things are are interesting, and some are, some are interesting because we just don't know the answer yet. And I think what one great question is is understanding. Um, getting our head around what, what we really think the, the are not is the, um, the ability of this virus of someone who is infected, um, to infect other people mm-hmm. and, and, uh, any kind of armchair epidemiologists out there, um, have probably heard, a, know a lot more about, about the, you know, kind of, uh, the epidemic curve and, and this, this, uh, metric of are not than maybe they did six months ago. Um, but, but there's been a lot of debate that in some settings, um, we're seeing very low kind of, uh, uh, transmission from individuals onward. Um, and in other cases, we're seeing very, very high and the, and the numbers can range from, from one or just above one, um, 1. 1.2, that, that kind of thing up into the, you know, four five, six. Mm-hmm. And this is the number of individuals that a single in- infected individual then kind of, um, spreads their infection onto mm-hmm. um, on average. And so, and in some, some instances, I mean, you know, you can see just rampant, uh, rapid, uh, uh, really um, invasive or invasive, sorry, uh, spread through a population very quickly that would suggest are not as very high, but then uh in others, in other contexts, it, it it doesn't seem to be transmitting as extensively yeah. as rapidly. So I think yeah. uh, that's when that that will be interesting to to converge on on uh, yeah. about this. this is this is bug. that sort of huge variation in R not in different contexts normal, or is that itself unusual? I I think it's um, not abnormal, t- given that we know so little about this still. Um, but I think nonetheless surprising that um, in different contexts um, we see such varying um, mm-hmm. kind of potential for transmission yeah. and that can there can be lots of, of confounding effects in terms of how vulnerable the population is is it you know in a, in a, a, a nursing home setting versus in a, a, a you know lower age group um, and, and other factors but uh, but I think I think we'll get there. It's just uh, taking some time to put all the data together. One of my takeaways from reading about this in in the media and the scientific literature is that, you know, these well, number one, the preventative measures can be ex- extremely effective, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's great. That's great news. And also, yeah, just there's a huge amount of difference in the risk of different contexts. And I think that's all of us yeah. are. That's what we're all struggling with mm-hmm. right now is understanding what is the real risk in different situations so we can move on with life in some way mm-hmm. um, safely. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is diagnostics. Um, uh-huh. It's, you know, it's an area that we, I think a lot of people don't understand. Why is this not more straightforward? Shouldn't we be able to test everyone? Why is that not happening? So maybe you can first <laughs> tell us what does a diagnostic test actually entail? And then we can get into why mm-hmm. is it not straightforward and what are some of the barriers? 
Right. The current um, gold standard for testing uh, for testing for COVID infection for coronavirus um, is um, is a test that um, involves direct detection of the the um, the genetic material of the virus itself. Um, and it is an, it's an assay, it's a test known um, to scientists as a, a qPCR test um, that involves uh, amplification of a tiny, tiny bit of viral um, viral genetic material to the point that we can detect it using the, the technology we have. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. And then if, if it, if we, if we detect it, it's positive. We, if we don't, we call that a negative. Um, but the, the thing that makes this challenging is that, um, the kind of the system for doing that is actually pretty laborious and requires specialized machines, specialized um, chemical reagents, specialized um, staff to run the test and to analyze the test. It's not a, a black and white outcome. Um, and so if you were to dream up the your, your kind of dream scenario diagnostic test for a virus that is causing a global pandemic, I think this might be like the last one on your list. Of, of all the options that we currently have. Um, it, uh, it, it does work, it's just tricky. Um, and it's, n it's nothing like um, some of the other things that we more conventionally think about when we think about uh, a, you know, a, a medical test where you just get a, a simple result, um, positive or negative, say like a pregnancy test, for example. Um, and even some some other simple like uh, tests that exist for other infectious diseases. We this one came on too quickly. We haven't um, we didn't have really a, a special kind of point of care, easily deployable, easily readable um, test ready to go. So everyone is, is was kind of scrambling to put together something that was robust and reliable um, in the diagnostic world sensitive and specific um, are the criteria, but um, that could be scaled and, and rolled out really globally as we've seen the need. I know one, one question that I wonder diagnostically is how, you know, how confident can you be that you have the right answer when you get one? Or is it, is, it, is it 100% or is yeah. it not 100%? And how, you know, right. how much confidence do we have in our results? I think, I think it's fair to say that a, a positive test is a positive. So the 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 false positive rate is 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 very low. Um, if you get a positive test, you have the virus in that sample. Um, if you get a negative result, that's where things get trickier. Um, and there it depends um, on many factors. One is, do you have? M might you have an infection, but just at a very low level? Um, and we still don't understand actually the um, relationship between the amount of virus in your system and whether you have symptoms or whether you can transmit. Um, and it, it also depends a bit on, on the 
prevalence in your in your community, I would say. So if you get a negative result in a place with very little COVID, you're probably negative. Mm -hmm. But if you get a a negative result in a community that with a lot of transmission, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're at high risk, if you know you've been exposed um, or you think you might have been, or if you've been like active in the community because of your work um, or for any other reason and just are at higher risk, and 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 you know for that reason you get tested and it's negative i would probably not um assume that that's right but in general i'd say a positive test is a positive and a negative test it mm-hmm. depends right why are some, I think why it's are all some countries doing above. so well like what are the what are those that are testing the most really nailing i guess yeah yeah um i think that's that's a bit of a different question um yeah. t- doing this kind of testing at scale is is hard um for lots of reasons and it was especially hard in you know in let's say in north america at least in you know february march just as as this was coming online as everyone um scurried to stand up the capacity to do this complicated um test that i was describing Mm -hmm. in their hospitals and in their clinics and in their you know um, public health labs um and so it's just it's it's just not um nothing about about it's not just the technical implementation of the test but the whole system the whole workflow the whole supply chain Mm -hmm. the whole um kind of specialized training that's needed you know the kind of uh workforce that's needed to do the testing and interpret it needed to be spun up um uh, to do at scale and 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 the need just happened a lot faster than than certainly you know in the US um than we were able to do as the you know the cases um started really exploding in many areas mm-hmm. um it does as i mentioned it requires specialized equipment specialized uh, chemical reagents specialized uh, workforce and so putting each of those pieces together not to mention the collecting the sample itself, the 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 little that the swab, sorry, that 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 the sample goes on, accessing those, accessing um the tube that that you put that that sample in, the the liquid, um, they call it viral transport medium that you that you stick the the swab in, you know, there are shortages of that, then it's, mm-hmm. you know, getting it into the lab and then reading the results and and knowing when you have a true result versus when you need to rerun to be sure. Um, yeah, just all aspects of it are not, are not really this, this, this test and the way that you implement it end to end is not designed for scale. We've, I think, kind of brute forced it to become the at scale option because we haven't had another option, Mm -hmm. um, and still don't, frankly. Um, there are some, some things brewing that could, um, supplement or potentially eventually replace. Um, the current test as the gold standard, but those are still in development. Do you see a path forward to having the capacity we need? A lot of people talk about for ongoing, you know, back to work, we need to have surveillance capacity. Do you see a path Mm -hmm. forward for that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, actually it comes back to, to the, one of the solutions to, to achieve that kind of scale comes back to um, genetics and, and sequencing genetic sequencing that we were talking about earlier. So there are, you know, across Canada and North America and really around the world, there are 
many hundreds, hundreds of thousands, I would say, of, uh, of these machines that sequence um, the genetic code of anything, including the, the um, COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. um, that have not really been put to the use of diagnostics. So when mm-hmm. we sequence it and when other groups who sequence these samples do this, we're not using that information to confirm or, or, or you know, uh, refute uh, the, the initial diagnosis of that individual. Mm-hmm. We're using it for subsequent analysis of the genetic code of the virus. Mm-hmm. But we, we could actually use the, this, the presence of, of the genetic code of the virus in the sample itself as a readout right. of a positive test. Right. Um, and of course, we need to think about, you know, how exactly to fine tune that to make sure that we know when we have a positive and we know when we have a negative. But the ability to do that at scale is tremendous. And it involves completely different um, supply chains and even like workflows than than the current large scale tests. Um, which means that it could really supplement what's currently established, it could mm-hmm. be additive um, rather than alternative to, to mm-hmm. the capacity that we currently have. And, and there you could be looking at, I mean, it's still the capacity of the, these sequencing machines themselves to, to, to generate the, these diagnostic test results. Are, you know, it really depends on the institution or how many machines you have, but we're talking thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tests a day, mm-hmm. if everything else can line up to feed those through the system. So you need to be able to collect that many samples um, and have all the right you know, bits that you need to do that and to get them to the centers that have these sequencing machines and, and to um, prepare them for the sequencing process and get them through. But, but in theory, the machines can handle just a, a, a tremendous kind of massive scale of testing. And I think if we can work out all the, uh, the upstream bits to feed, feed that many, uh, you know, samples collected from people through, um, that could be a very, uh, a very, uh, you know, great addition to the toolkit. I'd love to ask you to look in a crystal ball and see what's going to, how this, you know, outbreak is going to progress because um, yeah. you know, every outbreak has its own story. But I know there's, I know the answer is nobody knows, but what would you say are some mm-hmm. of the factors and that will sort of determine which way this goes, I guess, and some, mm-hmm. some like things we don't know and some of the things that, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the big question is about immunity mm-hmm. in the population and whether, um, you know, how do we get to, first of all, if you've been exposed, are you immune? Yeah. And that's still an unknown. And I think we we probably won't know the answer to that until we start to see this anticipated second wave um, in the fall mm-hmm. when, you know, other respiratory infections, including the flu, start to circulate again and, and, and including, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2. Um, yeah, so I think that's one big unknown. Um, and I think from a more kind of a, a practical perspective, 
I mean, getting people back to work is essential. We we have to we have to resume some semblance of an economy in a way that doesn't um, accelerate uh, infections to the point that it totally breaks our healthcare system. That's always been the the mm-hmm. the, the thing we've been trying to manage here. Um, and I think the key to getting to that point is is increasing testing, as we just mm-hmm. talked about, so folks can go back to work with confidence um, that they're safe. And I think we really need to address getting kids back to school. I think even if workplaces open for a lot of families out there, um, if if your kids are at home, it's hard for you to go back to work. It's hard to really restart the economy in earnest mm-hmm. if, if kids are out of school. Um, mm-hmm. And that means not only that the kids need to be safe, but the teachers need to feel safe. Yeah, you know, and uh, and we, you know, I think we all kind of are, are, we're only beginning to understand really the um, how kids are both susceptible and uh, vectors or or can transmit infection. Um, so that itself is still an unknown, but mm-hmm. we do know that older adults are are susceptible, and kids, you know. Um, could be bringing things from their families or from their environments into the school that, that put teachers at risk and, and, you know, in an unfair way. And I think, I think um, that's having testing and, and, uh, and, and productive ways to get school systems back up and running will really help us uh, move forward. What do you think are the prospects of, um, you know, really rapid testing that could allow decisions to be made in a short timeline I, I don't know what is the timeline mm-hmm. right now and what would be the best case scenario of, of yeah what happen? um so the I would say the timeline right now is on the order of about 24 hours so I think sometimes faster um in some cases but say that's that's about average and that's for a positive test so I think if 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 you if you're tested and you um are positive you'll hear very quickly, hopefully within, you know, less than 24 hours, same day, ideally, or, or, you know, next morning, if it's later in the day. Um, and if it's negative, it may take a little bit longer to let you know, just because obviously the prioritizing that feedback to positive mm-hmm. cases. Um, I think the best case scenario is um, for home tests, home testing. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the the that's the, you know, ultimate dream scenario that people never need to leave their home right. to find out if they're infected. They don't need to go to a clinic um, where they put themselves at risk of infection if in fact they're negative mm-hmm. or put others at risk of infection along their route if they're positive. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the the ideal is to be able to bring the test to the person, you know, for the test to go directly, you know, through the mail. Um, mm-hmm to people in their own homes, um, or through, you know, courier service. Um, we're, we're definitely not there yet, though. There's lots of kind of, um, models for doing that and, and things being tried at small scale. Um, the next best thing would be a point of care test, um, like a finger test if there was a blood-based test or something that could be done in a doctor's office or at a, a kind of urgent care clinic, um, Mm. without, um, without actually needing to go to a, to, to see a doctor even, um, Mm. but like by a nurse or nurse practitioner. Um, yeah. So we're, you know, we are waiting with bated breath for, for tests that can be rolled out. Um, 
at that scale um, that we trust, you know, that are, are validated and where the um, where the the entire system supports that. So, for example, if we're doing at home testing, we need really robust turnaround on delivery of those tests. Um, uh, or we could do at home collection and then bring the samples back to a central place to be tested. Um, that would, you know, maybe be the second best, so that the per individual never needs to leave their house, but they're mm. but they uh, but the test leaves the house and they uh, and they get a result quickly. Um, yeah, and so I think those are just a few flavors of of things that are uh, in development and and that hopefully we'll have solutions for soon. Yeah, that that I think it's good to end there with a little bit of an optimistic note that um, you know. <laughs> There are some great things in development to help um, to keep this thing under yeah. control by following it closely. Right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Any yeah. last comments and messages you would want to, you know, sort of whether it's uh, debunking something that you popularly you see in the media that doesn't make a lot of sense from scientifically or any, any just mm. sort of bits of advice you wanted to throw out there? Well, I think the only thing that I would, would say is... Um, uh, encourage people to uh, check the sources of the uh, information they're consuming. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, um, and I think everyone is fascinated by what we're all going through together. And 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 sometimes people with best intentions are are conveying strong opinions um, mm -hmm. that aren't really rooted in in uh, in data. Um, mm -hmm. in science and evidence. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would say that with, there are so, also a lot of people who are, who are working hard on evidence-based uh, information and sharing that in, in ways that are accessible um, to you know, the population at large. And so encourage everyone to uh, track down some of those great sources and, and get your information from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and try to do you have to, any um, do you have any specific favorite sources? Wow. Well, I think um, there's um, I think Johns Hopkins in particular mm -hmm. has done a tremendous of 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 sharing information um, in a very accessible way um, about this. That's one of my favorites. And then I, you know, being a scientist, I tend to follow um, kind of more scientific. Uh, sources maybe mm -hmm. you know uh mm -hmm. nature or the lancet mm -hmm. um or some of the the uh, more credible um sources that write more kind of publicly accessible yeah. versions of those stories um and then trusted media outlets i you know i by and large trust what i see on the cbc i trust their fact finding um you know i trust um BBC News for you know for the most part just in terms of trying to find some um, news sources that that um, do um, by and large do do the digging before they put information out yeah. there it's, it's not perfect and this is such a moving target and there's so much to synthesize and those reporters themselves have to sift between fact and fiction um, mm -hmm. so you know and nobody's perfect but uh, uh, I do and then and then on Twitter there's some great voices out there. Um, uh, Mark Lipsitch is mm. one of my personal favorites. Um, but you know I think finding um, some and and just you know if you're curious just 
just Google, <laughs> do, do a little digging, a little um, background checking on your sources. And yeah. sometimes even that's interesting in, in and of itself. Yeah. You can learn yeah. a lot about how information is, uh, is engineered and shared uh, in this world. And, and uh, it's worth taking a moment to know um, about who you're listening to, right. let alone what they're saying. Right. Yeah. One thing yeah. I would add on the, on the media is, um, even if it's from a trusted source, to always read the full article, well, the media yes. in particular, <laughs> because so often the headline really emphasizes the scary part, whereas if you read the full yeah. article, they tell you the whole story and it's not as scary yeah. to put in context. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Like these. And I know this is exactly what you're doing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, of course. <laughs> Fueled by science would be, uh, I yeah. missed that on Fueled your list. By so. Yeah, I should have said that first. But I, you know, huge respect to what you're doing here. We need so much more of it. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Well, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Bronwyn, right. yeah, we, we took enough of your time. So thank you uh, again uh, and uh, keep at the amazing work that you're doing and keep sharing with oh, the rest of the you. world what you're finding. <laughs> you too. <laughs> yeah, great. We'll okay. be following. Okay. Uh, okay. Take care. Take care. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye for now. <laughs> Bye. Bye.